timer. All right, good morning, family. Uh, we are moving through, for those of you who are visiting with us, we're moving through the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul's. Uh, what we have is the second letter of Corinthians. But as we've talked about a lot around here, it's probably the fourth letter, actually, that he wrote that we know of. And this morning, we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as Paul continues his defense of his ministry. So please read with me 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And... Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's again pray. Lord, even as you, for those who sit here who are being saved by your grace, who have been saved, being saved, and will be saved, even as you've enlightened us previously to see something of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we pray that you would give us further light, increased light, increased understanding so that we might behold his glory and be, as we heard last week, transformed from one degree of glory to another. So give us help this morning, we pray. And we plead with you that those who this morning came in who perhaps have smiles on their faces, who ate a good breakfast, who are in relatively good physical health, who are going about their days and their ways with uh, just ordinariness, Lord, but yet they sit in darkness. They are at this moment perishing. They are at this moment blinded by the God of this world and their own unbelief. Lord, we pray that by the end of the sermon, you would please open their eyes and speak your creative light into the hearts of those who sit in darkness right now, that their eyes might be open to your glory in the image of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, so it's our practice to just pick up in the next section. It makes it easy for a number of reasons just to, rather than me, sitting on a Monday morning creatively trying to think of what to preach next. We take books of the Bible, and what's wonderful, one of the things that's wonderful about that is just, I know what I'm going to preach next. I don't know how far into the next text, but I know what's coming next. It keeps me from skipping over stuff I don't like or don't agree with or feel uncomfortable about, as we're going to get into the issue of giving here in a couple of chapters. I don't like talking about money, but the Word is going to force me, as it were, to talk about money. 
But what we're talking about this morning is something I delight to talk about, which is the glory of God in the image of Jesus. So we come to the next section, the next text. But for those of you who haven't been around, just a quick, brief introduction that Paul is writing to this church that he helped to plant, that he preached the gospel in, that he has had tremendous troubles with. We read that in 1 Corinthians. We read in 2 Corinthians of him having a very unpleasant visit, which is led by a rebel rouser who leads a rebellion against him, and the church follows him for a season. But then he gives a severe letter. He writes a letter that's very severe, calling them to repentance, calling them to grieve and to sorrow, which surprisingly, but not surprisingly, they do. This is a follow-up letter to that, but there are still problems within the church. Not only has this man who was a, a rebel rouser against him, not only has he been tamed and put back into the cage and brought under church discipline, but now we have other people who are making other accusations against him, including this group of people called the super apostles that we'll talk about a little bit beginning this morning. I've mentioned them a number of times, uh, but we've not talked a lot about them. So what is happening here is Paul has come in and out of the life of the Corinthian church as an apostle, and his uh, authority keeps getting undermined. His influence keeps getting undermined. If he was a resident elder at a local church, maybe he could have in some ways overcome that. But the fact that he would come in, teach, instruct, do the things that he did, and then leave and leave apostolic representatives behind, and then he was away, it was just an opportunity. And I've actually heard, I, I, I read a paper once that somebody gave to me to give to a pastor who was changing pastorates because they thought it was their job to tell me, to tell them to not go to another church and wrote an entire paper about the importance of localized ministry over the long haul, which I genuinely agree with, but we just don't have that in Paul. We do have him going to the Ephesian church for a couple of years at best, two to three years, uh, but most of his time there was spent in relatively small time because he's not a local church pastor. That's why he would tell Timothy and Titus to establish elders who would stay in the local church to help deal with some of the problems that we find uh, even here. But even him being an apostle does not negate the fact that people criticized him. People wrongly assumed motives against him. People made accusations against him. People questioned his motives, his words, his writing, his presence. They made fun of his physical appearance. They did all of this. So he's writing this letter to try to pull them back into who he is as called by an apostle. And at this point, he starts taking the gloves off a little bit, starts bare knuckle boxing and starts going after the guys who are criticizing him. And he begins to return in a very uh, a careful way the very things that these men are doing at this time in the church. So what we have here is a continuance of Paul defending his call in ministry in contrast to those people who peddle, which he mentions them back in chapter uh, uh, two, those who peddle God's word. And it's a peddler. It's somebody who like who, who goes to a store and buys goods and then puts it on a cart and then goes out in the street and maybe changes it and hikes the price up. And all they're worried about is the profit. They're not necessarily worried about the product and keeping it pure. It's somebody who takes the, the old uh, medicine from the medicine show, waters it down, puts in their own thing, ends up poisoning people in the process. But they're in it because it's lucrative. They're in it because it's going to get them uh, a profit, because it's going to get them money. And Paul says that what he does is not what these street hawker peddlers do, but he's got a very different approach to gospel ministries we'll see this morning. So this is, it seems, a particular response to those who claim that his preaching was 
obscured and complicated at best. They're like, Paul's just so like complicated. And he's talking about justification and sanctification and these nuances and Christ in the Old Testament. And you can see Jesus here and Jesus is the rock and he's making things complicated. What we know is we should obey the law and that Jesus came and fulfilled the law. And he gave us an example of how we should obey the law or something probably like that. It was just a simple, another Christian form of legalism. But Paul is talking about things that these guys don't understand. And because they don't understand it, they're like, Paul's so confusing and obscuring. He tells these stories and he goes on and on and rants about this deep theology. And he's just making it complicated. If God is real, obey him. That's what it is. Jesus gave you an example to obey. Therefore, go obey. Don't worry about Paul's justification. Don't worry about Paul's intricacies of the mysteries of the Gentiles and all of that kind of stuff. He's just obscured and complicated. That's what these super apostles are doing at best. At worst, they're saying what he is saying is actually contradicting the Old Testament scripture. That, that, that he's undermining, he's teaching a form of grace that undermines the importance of keeping the law or even something worse. They're accusing him at worst of just being a complete hack when it comes to understanding the gospel and understanding the scripture. And that's what these guys are saying. And the Corinthian church is going, huh, huh you got a point there. Because when Paul preaches, he, he kind of preaches long and he kind of preaches complicated. And I don't understand some of the things that he says. And for that reason, maybe you're right. Is it really that complicated? Now, Paul's going to respond to that. And then lastly here, these are the super apostles from which the accusation likely comes. These super apostles were known as gifted rhetoricians. Many of them maybe had even been trained in what was known as sophistry or sophistry. This was a professional school that you'll read about in the ancient writers where they literally taught you, and, and you have to wonder if some lawyers, not to knock lawyers, there are good lawyers as well, just like there's good in other professions, but lawyers who just, they take the case and they're going to argue the case but there's no sense of bound morality. Like if I found out my client was not guilty, that, that I have a, a conflict of interest because of my morality. Well, the sophists were like that. It was about winning the case. It wasn't about defending the truth. And one of the skills of the sophists is if they could get up in front of an audience and argue a point and persuade you. Now, how many of you believe what he did? Yes, yes. And then he gets up and he argues the opposite point. And now how many of you believe him now? The opposite. And they're like, oh, actually, that was pretty persuasive, too. And so that was the gift of the sophist. It wasn't about the truth. It was the ability to communicate something that compelled people to believe it was the truth, not that there was truth in it whatsoever. And so it seems like these super apostles may have been Jewish sophist teachers and rhetoricians who were greatly persuasive in their preaching who now have picked up on Christianity and the, the key terms of like Jesus and justification and the gospel and the church. And they're like, hey, actually, the Corinthian church is a pretty wealthy church overall. And if we can get in and get payment for fees. And so what they begin to do is they begin to water down and peddle the gospel hawking the gospel, taking it in, watering it down, mixing it with other things, presenting it, and as long as it tastes good going down and someone had the psychological benefit of, ah, I think I am feeling better now about myself, and I think I am feeling better. It's like, all right, pay up, and we're good. So for them, it wasn't the truth. It was their ability to present something as the truth that convinced people enough to sufficiently pay them 
and give him money. This is who Paul is fighting against. And you say, oh, no gospel church would ever fall into that. Well, the Corinthian church did. The Corinthian church did. Later, he's going to say, actually, if somebody comes peddling another gospel and another Jesus, you guys have believed it. And he's rebuking them for actually taking in these hucksters. So these are the super apostles who are saying, you know, Paul's not very convincing. Paul's not very rhetorically gifted. As a matter of fact, his body is beaten all to death. I mean, he could barely walk in the room without groaning and moaning. And I mean, certainly his lung capacity is severely is severely affected by the fact that he's nearly drowned, that he's gone in fasting, his muscles have atrophied, his back and his ribs have been broken through numerous stoning and whippings and beatings. This is not a man who's going to influence people by his rhetorical skill. Therefore, he's just not that impressive to us. But look at us. We're healthy and we smile a lot. And we're convincing. And if you want a gospel that makes you look like that, you go ahead. But if you want the gospel, a gospel that makes you look like us and successful and wearing $500 suits and sneakers that are several hundreds of dollars, and if you want this and you want this kind of a mega place, then come follow us. And Paul comes walking in, creaking in, saying there's some significant problems with what you've bought into. And these are the super apostles these probably Jewish sophist teachers who've come in and have, in fact, influenced the church at this point. This is who Paul is responding to. So we're going to look at these verses under three headings. First of all, there, that is Paul's ministry and, and those who were his companions, their ministry of the gospel, the veiling of the gospel, and then the revealing of the gospel. First of all, their ministry of the gospel. He defines his own gospel ministry. He says, therefore, and therefore, what is it? You know, when you see a therefore, you look what it's there for. It's always usually what comes before it. He's been talking about the Old and New Testaments. He's been talking about the Old and New Covenant. We've looked at the ministry condemnation versus the ministry of righteousness, the ministry that, that is ending and, and came to an end and had a, a, a partial glory. And then the, the ministry of the New Covenant that came by the Spirit written on the heart that has a permanency to it. He says, this is the ministry we've been given. This is the, and the word here, we think of ministry as like this professional class of people who do this thing. Ministry just means service. And it's the service of the gospel. And he says, we have, based on all these things we've been saying, we have this ministry we've been describing to you, and we have it by the mercy of God. This ministry that he describes back in chapter 3, verse 6, as this ministry which God has made them competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit. So it's this ministry of the Holy Spirit's work in him and in the church. We've received this ministry, he says, by the mercy of God. He talks about this in Timothy. He says, when he writes Timothy, he says, I have received mercy because what I did, I did in ignorance. He's the chief of sinner, but he receives mercy. So this ministry that he's been given, I mean, can, can you imagine? He's been beaten how many times, almost drowned, fasted, been through all of these terrible perils. His body is broken. His his, his, his uh, spirit is, as we'll see, not broken. But what is this, Paul, that you've been given? He said, this is, the, this is the mercy of God I've been given. All of this ability and responsibility to suffer for the sake of the good of other souls and for the glory of God has been given to us by the mercy of God. 
Because everything that Paul suffered was not as hard as what hell would be. Paul knew he deserved hell. He deserved suffering. He deserved for God to pour out his wrath on him forever and ever. And yet he's been given mercy. And instead of suffering for his sin, he is suffering and filling up the suffering of Christ, as Paul says in Colossians, for the sake of the church, that they too may receive mercy. He says, because of this mercy, because of this ministry that's been given us, despite everything that we have physically suffered, despite everything that we've been accused of, despite everything that these false teachers are bringing in, we don't lose heart. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I lose heart when I get up in the morning and I bump my head, my toe or my head on the corner of the bed and just think, all right, the, the universe is against me, right? I mean, already it's starting. But after all that Paul suffers, he can say, and, I, and we've already seen he was crushed, he was, he was downtrodden, that there were times of periods of his own darkness, his own struggle. But he can look at his life overall and say, you know what the mark of our life is by the mercy of God is we have not lose heart. Because if you lose heart, you lose motivation. If you lose heart, you lose desire. If you lose heart, then you go through the motions for a bit, but you can't keep it up. Heart is what keeps the passions going. And Paul says, because we've received this ministry, we do not lose heart. And then he goes on further now to contrast it to the super apostles. We have renounced. And it sounds like maybe he used to do it and then he stopped doing it. And that's not quite the, 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 um, the meaning of the verb. It doesn't mean we used to do these things and then we stopped doing them. It means he has made an intentional commitment to renounce the finality of this, what he's going to say here. And that is, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Disgraceful, as you can see in the word, just means something that you do that you should just be ashamed of. And we, of course, live in a day where shame is almost completely disappearing in, in some ways. In other ways, it's not. It's, it's, you're going to be cause shame if you don't agree with X, Y, Z. But shame for morality, shame for standing before a holy God, disgraceful ways of behaving in certain ways. It's like, well, you got your thing. I got my thing. Somebody else has his thing. Paul says there are certain behaviors that are just disgraceful that somebody sh should feel disgraced by. He said, but in regards to this ministry, and there are people that in ministry should be ashamed of how they handle the word. They should be ashamed of how they lead a church. They should be ashamed of how they use ministry to manipulate people and build their own kingdoms. It's disgraceful. But Paul says we've renounced that. We've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. It's like, yeah, we're going to say one thing up here, but do something else under here. That's underhanded. What we're saying above board in the presentation, there's things going on behind the scenes and in the in the in the more board rooms and in the meeting rooms that we're we're actually under here. But but this is to support what looks at me. He's like, we we there is no underboard. There is no under the table. There is no sneaky, underhanded ways. He's like, we what we do, we make plain, he will say. We refuse here. He's talking again, again about those who tend to peddle God's word. We refuse to practice cunning. 
We refuse to like dumb down the word. We refuse to to water down the gospel or to mix it with other things or to tamper with God's word. And here again is the huckster who goes and buys the pure stuff at the store and then begins to water it down, water it down, increasing the price, getting more for it, mixing in their own little elixirs with it and and and, and polluting it. So we, we, we're not practicing that. When we tell you this is the gospel. This is what we mean. When we tell you this is the Bible, this is what we mean. When we tell you this is Jesus, this is what we mean. And now they've come up with a new Jesus and a different God and a different gospel. And he's like, we're not doing that. And we're not tampering. We're not saying, well, there's things that we want to accomplish in the building of our kingdom and of our wealth. And, and how are we going to use the Bible to accomplish our vision? Paul says, no, we have the Bible to cast our vision and to lead us in a way, and that's what we're going to do. So we're not doing that. We're not manipulating God's word. We're not coming at it with the sophists with an agenda to then manipulate the Bible and write books about the Bible and give sermons about the Bible that's going to accomplish our purposes, but rather the Bible itself is that which identifies and gives us vision to the purpose. So we we just we we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning like manipulation and coercion. We refuse to tamper with God's word. And this is what he says. By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, be clear. This doesn't mean that Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians, doesn't become all things to all people. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that he doesn't use metaphors in literature, in images. It doesn't mean he doesn't quote philosophy when it serves his purpose. It doesn't mean that Paul just has this kind of, you know, Christianity 101, just say the words, leave people to it, and, you know, to hell with them if they don't believe it. It's not that he's saying. He's using winsomeness. He's using persuasiveness. He is using a number of tools but it doesn't water down or change anything he's saying. We see in his epistles an incredible giftedness of casuistry of how to encourage people and help people and not flatter them, but encourage them and uplift them and uphold them. So he's not saying, you, you, so you, in other words, we just can't come to this verse and, and, and justify being a jerk for the sake of Jesus. Oh, there's a three J's. Justify being a jerk for Jesus. Triple J. There's triple J's. Well, just open statement of the faith. Well, Paul's not a jerk for Jesus. But he says, but what I do is to make things more clear. The metaphors I use, the images I use, the things that I say is for the open statement of the truth, not being a jerk for Jesus, but not tampering, not cunning, not disgraceful. And because of this, he says, for this reason, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Now, this sounds similar to what the super apostles are going to do. They are going to boast in their abilities, but that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is challenging the Corinthian church to examine their consciences in regards to his personal behavior. And he could say to them, do you, do, have you known me to be a person that manipulates you for my own benefit? Do you know me to be the kind of person that is cunning or tampering with the word or is caught in a lie or has this ministry of manipulation and, and all the, do you know that? And he says, I have such confidence I can commend with a good conscience myself before other people's conscience. And he says, I do that in the sight of God. Now he's going to talk about later 
how he's not justified fully by that. He says, I, I, I know nothing against myself, though I'm not justified this, for God alone justifies me. But at this level, compared to what he's asking them to do is say, look at my ministry and the honesty and lowliness of my ministry and look at these super apostles and really? Re I mean, really? You see the kind of cars they drive. You see the kind of houses they live in. You see the amount of money that they make. You see all of these things and they're doing it in the name of Jesus and the gospel isn't clear. You and your conscience knows there's a difference, Paul said, between those hucksters and me living in the simplicity of the gospel and even suffering for the sake of the truth. That's what he is saying to them. I commend, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. You know there's a difference between us. You can look. And just because that's the lifestyle that you want, your conscience still screams out to you and tells you, you know that's not what Jesus promised. Something like that is what he's doing at this point. But now somebody's going to offer the objection, and he doesn't do it here in the typical way that he does it like in the book of Romans, but offer the objection. It's like, you know what, Paul? I mean, they kind of got a point. Some of the things you say are hard to understand. Even Peter wrote a letter or will write a letter that says some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. And they're obscure. And Paul's going to address that now. He said, well, here, here's part of the reason. Yes, there are things to, hard to understand. There's, there's ways to grow in the faith and have things make more understanding and all the rest. He said, but there's some people who just who can't see the gospel. And he writes this. Even if our gospel is veiled, and that, that seems to be an accusation against him, is Paul saying, you know, he preaches to some people and they just don't have a clue what he's talking about. When he talks about Jesus and justification and the Bible and, you know, Jesus rising from the dead. And then you talk to people afterwards, what, what was he talking about? I have no idea. I don't understand it. I guess he was just telling us to be better people or something like that. It's like, no, 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 you didn't get the message. So the gospel is veiled to some. This is what Paul says. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. I'll, I'll never forget, and ultimately, I don't know that this man, whether he was a Christian, whether he became a Christian, but he was a friend of mine named Mike, who I worked with when I was up in seminary up in New Jersey. And I remember, and he had come from a Roman Catholic background, so he was kind of a, a um, holiday Catholic church attender. And so he wasn't even a good Catholic in the sense that he knew and understood kind of how things work. But I had one afternoon after after work that I began to talk to him and we began to interact. And uh, I was trying to explain the gospel to him and he was trying to explain to me what the Roman Catholic Church and I actually maybe at that point knew more than he did um, about the church and some of the things. But I was I was trying to focus on the gospel and finally got to the point. It's like, look, Mike, if you don't if you don't remember anything else about this conversation, because he, he was a super smart guy, engineer, good boss, um, a good manager and. And he kept wanting to go down these rabbit trails. And I pulled him back and said, if you, don't, if you don't remember anything else, please, Mike, just remember this. That we cannot be saved by our own good works, but only the finished work of Jesus. That's it. That's it. If you can't remember anything else, that's the good news. I mean, it's the good news boiled down. There's a lot more in that seed that, that, that moves outward. But we cannot be saved by our good works. It's only the finished work of Jesus that can save us. It, it, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that's good, that's good. 
So the next day I came in, I walked, popped my head into his office. Hey, man, Mike, how you doing, man? It's good. Yeah, yeah how, how late you stay last night? Uh, about eight o'clock or whatever. Did you get something? Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you sleep all right? Yeah. Hey, do you remember that one thing that I told you to remember? He's like, yeah, I think so. That we should just really work hard in order to please God. This, this is a guy with a degree in engineering. He's not dumb. It's not an issue of logic. It's not the issue of being able to memorize words. And I, at this point, I don't, I don't think it was him being like snarky or, you know, a smart aleck or something like that. It was just, he was blinded to it. Like I hear the gospel and what I hear is I got to go to church more. I got to read my Bible more. I got to be a better Christian. I got to do gooder. I got, I got, I got to do this. Then God will accept me. Not, I'm not good enough. Jesus did everything on my behalf. And when I put my faith in him, that's how I'm made right with God, apart from my own works. And my works then follow because of love, not trying to be made right with God, something like that. And so that's an example, I think, of just there was a clear veil at the time of this man, man my friend. And Paul says this, yeah, there are people that no matter how simply, plainly, uh, uh, wa not watered down, but simplified it is, He's like, there's some people that are looking at it, shaking their head with a veil and cannot see it. And that's the condition of the person that is without the Holy Spirit, is without what we call regeneration, or what Jesus calls in John 3, the new birth. He said, but here's the thing is it's veiled to those who are perishing. Now, there's a flip side to this. It is veiled to some who understand it, but don't believe it. There are some people in universities, in theology departments, in philosophy departments. I remember talking to a professor when I was at Indiana University Southeast in introductory philosophy. Actually, it was symbolic logic. It wasn't philosophy. It was symbolic logic. I had another interesting professor for, for intro to philosophy. But in, in uh, uh, symbolic logic, like he was at Southern Seminary at the time. It was before Al Mohler got there, for, for those of you who know him. But he... he he clearly could articulate the gospel. The thing is, he didn't believe it. And in another sense, there's an intellectual blindness and veiling. But there's also, as Paul has been unfolding in chapter 3, there's a heart blindness that I don't believe it. I can, I can repeat it. I can study a theology exam. I can give you the right answers. But I have not rested and trusted in Christ for my salvation. And Paul says, whether it's an intellectual veiling or a spiritual heart veiling, the condition of this person is the wide gate, the wide road that Jesus says the end of destruction is destruction. The, Paul, the word Paul uses here is they are perishing. They're not going to perish. They're actually in the process of perishing. There's something of perishing and destruction and hell that begins in this life, as C.S. Lewis says. It will be all a precedent, uh, a, a, a precursor to the ultimate perishing destruction. And it's already begun for those who don't believe. He says it's veiled to them. And then he gives us some of the theology and the spiritual uh, terminology and vocabulary to, to explain what's going on. He says, in their case, those who, who are veiled, those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world, which... We use that phrase so much, um, I just want to sit on it a minute because it should make us a little bit uncomfortable. Because the Bible's clear, there's only one God. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are no other gods, because, and you shall have no other gods before me. There is one God but God. And yet Paul uses, and, 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 and it's not capitalized, right? In the English, well, in the Greek, there was no capitalization distinction between the two. You had, you had forms of letters of the Greek alphabet that were either all small letters or all capitals, and you've got other kind of interesting things in the manuscripts. But, but it's not like, well, God, God is big G in the Bible, and this is God little g. It's, it's the same word. It's theos. So has Paul suddenly given up his monotheism? I, I don't think so, but, but he does identify that Satan has some sort of real influence in the world or it, it, and the word is not cosmos, I believe it's aeon, it's this age, this present age, that even after the resurrection of Jesus, there is an activity of Satan where he is the God of this world. Now, this isn't that surprising because we read over in John chapter 12, if you'd like to turn there briefly. In John chapter 12, verse 31, this is what Jesus says about Satan. He says, now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, wait a minute. So is he the ruler of this world? Is he cast out now? Is he not cast out? Is he still blinding people? Is he not blinding people? Well, those are great questions, friends. <laughs> and it's a complicated answer. But according to Jesus, now at his death, burial, and resurrection, Satan is being cast out. He's being cast down. But Paul says there is still an influence of Satan who is active in the lives of unbelievers. And he says this, in, the, in their case, those who are perishing, and if you're not a Christian this morning, Paul is saying something autobiographical about you. Okay, so just keep this in mind. And it's not an insult. It, it, it is a theological truth to which you should respond in great earnestness. Okay, so it's not an insult. It's not trying to be ugly, but, but, but it's, it's, it's kind of like the doctor who comes along and says, I'm sorry, we found a lump of cancer. You, you don't hate the doctor for the diagnosis. I mean, you're not exactly happy that this is the deliverer, but the diagnosis is so you can be healed. And the diagnosis of being told the C word, you have cancer, is horrifying, but it's that you might act on it. And, so, and what we read in this verse is a diagnosis of your spiritual condition not so you can get mad at me or the Bible or anything else, but that you might act on it and be saved and not perish. So in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Okay, so there, this is tricky here, and I don't want, I'm not going to try to go too much into it, but he's blinded a certain group of people, and they are unbelievers. Okay, so the question is, are they unbelievers and for that reason they are blinded? Or are they blinded and for that reason they are unbelievers? Okay, so that's a big, huge theological question. I'm going to answer it by simply saying, saying at this point, both are true. Both are true. That these are unbelievers. But he, well, no, let me, let me mention this. Because what you have, if you have unbelievers that were not once unbelievers, but they were blinded. What you have them as being believers, being blinded, and then becoming unbelievers. So in other words, the blindness is a judgment of their unbelief. Okay? That's, that's what I think is going on here for a number of reasons. But nevertheless, God, or the God of this world, 
is blinding. And by the way, some of the commentators, some of the older commentators, they look at this verse and they're like, this can't be about Satan. This can't be about Satan. And then they look at the Old Testament about some of the things that God does. And they say, no, it's the God of this world. It's talking about big G God. He's blinded the mind of unbelievers. But for various reasons, including the place of Satan in this very book, I don't believe that what, that's what he's going on. Plus, what we're getting re ready to be told, what God does in response to this. So the veiling of the gospel is because he's blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So they are already born in unbelief. They're blind. They can't see. The light comes in and the God of this age veils their eyes so they don't see and understand and believe the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a lot that could be unpacked there. I don't have time to do so, but this is what it's saying is that there's a glory of God, as we saw in the past couple of weeks, in the Old Testament that could not be looked on, could not be seen because of its holiness, because of its righteousness, and because of our sinfulness. But in Jesus Christ, the holiness of God is not diminished at all, but rather what we are made in Christ enables us to bear his glory. And then what Paul says here in the next verse is, that it's the glory of Christ. Any kind of gospel that doesn't magnify the death, burial, and resurrection and coming again of Jesus is not can't be a true gospel because it's about making much of Jesus. It's about that's that's why we sing so many songs about Jesus around here. That's why he's such a big deal to us. Not just some god and some kind of uh, ephemeral idea of you know, the, the higher power above us or some kind of God and everybody has that. No, it's specifically in the person of Jesus. And it's the light, light of the gospel of the glory of Christ that, by the way, the Acts 26, 18 is Paul's commission to be sent to the Gentiles that they might be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of his son. And then in Hebrews 1, 3, what we're told is that Christ is, and this is a whole important doctrine, Christ is the image of God in a way that's absolutely unique. We read back in Genesis chapter 1 about how Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but here Jesus comes as the perfect representation, the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1, 3 tells us. And so what happens is the, the gospel, and Paul preaching the gospel, comes in front of people's eyes. And what do they do? Well, they're unbelievers. And for that reason, Satan is blinding them and they can't see, they can't understand, and it's obscured. So Paul says it's not a deliverer messenger problem. It's not a message problem. The reason people, some people don't believe is because they are perishing, because they are blinded, because of unbelief, and they can't see the glory of Jesus. They say, Jesus, Jesus. I mean, Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad. I mean, what's the difference between them all? And you say, well, there's this difference, this difference, this difference. And they go, yeah, I still don't see it. Literally, I still don't see it. Well, he was resurrected from the dead. Well, what difference does that make? Well, he was God in the flesh. Well, what difference does that make? Well, he, he sends the Holy Spirit. What difference? I don't see the difference. That's, that's by, by the way, the confession of blindness. I don't see the difference. Paul says he is the exact imprint. And if you think of all of the things that bear God's image and display his glory, what is at the absolute pinnacle at the top of that display of his glory is Jesus himself. You want to know God? 
he is made known most exquisitely and deliciously and wonderfully through the person of Jesus. And if you can't read through the Gospels and you don't like Jesus, you're not going to like God. Some people are like, well, I like God. I just don't like Jesus and his followers. Well, there's a huge problem because that is God who stepped into human flesh and said, I'm here. I've moved into the neighborhood. When you've seen me, you've seen my father. Which brings us lastly to the, the, the revealing of the gospel. So what, what is the remedy for this? I mean, how do you change this blindness and this veiling and this darkness well, here's what God does, because we can't do it ourselves. We can't go to school to get educated enough for it. We can't, we can't go out and sit on top of a mountain and think about it long enough. We can't go and read all the philosophy books of all of human history and figure it out. We can't go to someone we just think is wise. There's something specifically that is needed for the veil to be lifted and for the light to come on and for someone to see the glory of Jesus. And this is it. After this, I forgot about this part. But after this... We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, so that's more than just he's a good guy. He's a master. This is God in the flesh with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake for God. And here's what he does for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's probably a reference to Genesis one, slightly different language, but conceptually in the theme and motif, it's the same thing. It is God who in the beginning said, let there be light. And there was light. Okay, so before light, what do you have? You have darkness. So he's going back to the creation story. He's going back to Genesis 1 and 1 and says, what do you do for this person who is perishing? What can you do for them? How, do, how does that change? How do they see? Well, it takes a creative act of God and speaking light into them. That's the only way to see Christ is that there is God speaking, let, because here's this person that's darkened in their mind, they're darkened in their heart, they, they see Christ presented to them, and they can't see. Seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, lest they should understand. And what happens? God says, let light shine out of darkness. And you know what he's done? He's, he's done that in our hearts. So every one of you here, God has done a creative act as magnificent, if not more, than he did in Genesis 1.1. When you look at the world, when you look at the creation, when you wonder at the world, when you think about the vastness of the ocean and the, the height of the mountains and the, and the depths of the seas, and you think this is marvelous what God has done, it's no more marvelous than what God did in you in making you a Christian. And speaking to you, light, shine. And you suddenly said, oh, Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the church, but one day you went, oh, Jesus. And you're like telling other people, oh, Jesus. And they're like, yeah, of course, <laughs> Jesus. You've known that all year? No, but Jesus, like he is the image of God. He is the Savior. Everybody's going, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. They think you're crazy. It's because something as magnificent and, and, and climactic as the original creation of the world has happened in your soul. He has shown in our hearts. He has created light in the midst of the darkness. And that light somehow in, in, in all of that imagery of veil and blindness. But suddenly the light comes out so the light can get in. Something like that. And here's what he does when he gives light. This is, this is the act of God in saving people who are presently perishing or who have been veiled. 
It is to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Suddenly you see the face of Jesus preached. You see the face of Jesus in the Bible. You see the face of Jesus acted out in the lives of God's people. And suddenly you go, that's glorious. That's amazing. That's wonderful. That is where I see God in his glory. I see it in creation. I see it. But now I see Again, at the top of the hierarchy, what I see is when I see Jesus, I see the glory of God. And he's everything to me. And he's holy and he's righteous and he's loving and he's patient and he's kind and he's merciful. But he's also holy and he's full of wrath and he says he's going to come again. And I believe in him. And now I believe at the top of all of the revelation of God that he's at the top and he's the most important. He is the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself. Which is what Barnett says. The glorified Christ is the ultimate and eschatological revelation of God. There is nothing more that can or will be seen of God than what we see in Jesus. So there is in this passage the mysterious connection between, we're in the application here quickly, the mysterious connection between our proclamation of the good news and God's work. What Paul is doing is he's defending his earnestness, his, his, his forthrightness, his uh, being able to commend himself to the consciences of people, not uh, underhanded, undermining. Uh, he's not manipulative. And he says, this is, this is what is happening in our ministry. But at the same time, all of that can be done unless God says light in the midst of darkness. It does, it's not effective. We can give all the right answers or the best we can. We can proclaim Jesus as plainly, but there's a darkness inside of the person that cannot be penetrated by our arguments or our persuasion. It can only be able to be uh, penetrated by a fiat act of God's creative work. That's why we say salvation is of the Lord. That's why we say unless God moves and moves powerfully, there's nothing that we can do. But there's a mysterious connection that God ordinarily works through faithfulness of preaching of the gospel and not apart from it or without it. Yes, he can use hucksters. Yes, he can use other things. But Paul's earnestness is that his life and his faithfulness be wedded together with the power and the work of God. And notice what he says here. We preach not ourselves, but we proclaim Christ. And I just want to quickly make a distinction. I think there is a difference between preaching Christ and him crucified, preaching the person of Jesus. I mean, if you're witnessing to somebody, have them deal with Jesus. Have them deal with Jesus. We're not here to preach ourselves, of course. Well, I had this experience and then I had this experience and this is how I know and this is how I know. It's not, I mean, our testimony plays a part in it. But it's not preaching ourselves and our own experience. It's preaching the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And it's, by the way, it's not preaching Christianity. This, this idea we preach Christianity is this whole kind of a thing. No, it's preaching Christ, which brings them into this thing that we can call loosely Christianity, whatever exactly that means. But it's preaching Christ or, or preaching the church. Man, if, I could, if you just come to church with me, if you just come to church, you know what you need to do? You need to go to church. And obviously, I think church is important, but we're not preaching the church. We're not preaching denominations. We're not preaching Reformed Baptist Church. We are called to preach Christ. 
And, and it's not preaching Christ to invite somebody to church. It's just not. It's an invitation to an event. And maybe if they come, God will work and they'll come and they'll hear the gospel and they'll be saved. But that's not the same thing as having preached Christ to them. Or even if I, and I need to be careful here, or even preaching the Bible. Trying to prove somebody the Bible is true, getting into the evidence behind the Bible, giving, getting into the manuscripts and all, all of which I think has an apologetic place in what we do. But trying to get somebody to believe that the Bible is the Bible is not the same thing as preaching Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified where we find that we find it in the Bible. But that's different than trying to merely argue somebody into believing that the Bible is true. And what we don't find is the apostles arguing that in the New Testament. What they have is preaching Christ and him crucified. Well, how can I know more about Jesus? What do we know about his story? Why did he come to the world? That's what we find in Scripture. But spending hours and hours and hours apologetically trying to prove that the Bible is true should not be confused with preaching Christ. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the unique sacrificial atonement of Christ and all the things that come along with that. So I, I would urge us in our witnessing and our testimonies and what we have to say, make a beeline to Christ as quickly as possible because that's the gospel. That's the image of God. That's the thing and the person who needs to believe what, what a person needs to believe to be saved. I would suggest a lot of people came to know and love Jesus long before they became convinced that the whole of the Bible was inspired scriptures. And C.S. Lewis, by the way, was one of them. And many others. That there's something compelling about the person of Christ that pulls you in. But if you try to switch it around, what you can get is some very deep arguments and smart people and very complicated ideas, but you've never actually preached Christ. So something to keep in mind. Um, I'm going to skip that one. Let me end with this. It's simply this question. What, what is your current response to the person of Jesus? Some of y'all have been around here a while. Some of y'all have grown up in the church. Some of y'all have been here in a Christian home or somewhere else. You've heard Jesus sufficiently. What is your present response to him? Is he all glorious to you? Do, you? do you get it? Do you go, oh, like, oh, yeah, Jesus. Jesus, like, that's, that's the glory of God. That's the person through whom I know God. That's the person who's created me. That's the person who has saved me. That's the person who's coming again to judge the world in righteousness. And he's proven this because of the resurrection. Jesus, yes, I get it. Let me simply say this. If you believe that and you're living to some degree in earnest toward that and living as a Christian, and when you think about what you should do and not should not do, you think, what does the Bible say? When you think about how you should live, how you should not live, you think, well, here's what Jesus tells me to do. If you do that, you should step forward and be baptized as a disciple of Jesus. This whole idea of, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I hate sin enough. I mean, I'm 54 and I'm not sure if I hate sin enough. I know I don't. Well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I have enough confidence that I really believe. Well, I'm 54. And thanks be to God, I'm not trusting in my own confidence and my own belief. I'm trusting in Jesus. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. And you keep looking inwardly. 
Stop looking inwardly and work, look to Christ and step out and say, I will follow him and be baptized. It's that simple. Well, I'm waiting for God to do what you're waiting, waiting, waiting. Do you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus? Well, not as much as I should. Well, here's this thing is once the veil comes off, his glory grows over time. As you pursue him, as you walk with him, as you know him, sometimes that glory is diminished because of the reality of sin. Sometimes that glory, that glory is is damp, uh, dampened out or or obscured because I'm, I'm pursuing something other than Jesus. That's part of the Christian life. But if you say essentially, I see the glory of God in the face of Christ and I believe he died for my sins and I want to follow him, but I feel so inadequate. You are the very person that Jesus says, you know what you should do? You should be baptized as a disciple, pursue the community of the church and walk with him. So I hope some of you who are waiting, but who already see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, you believe the gospel, you believe he died for your sins, you believe you have no, you, you believe you are not good enough before God. You know what that's called? It's called the light that God has spoken into you. And you shouldn't wait for any more light. You shouldn't wait for any more feelings. You shouldn't wait for any more internal confirmation. You should act on the light that you've received because God has done that work in you. If you sit here relatively indifferent, it's like, well, Jesus, Jesus, I'll, I'll check out some more things or whatever, then, then I don't have good news for you in one sense. I don't have a good news because you know how the Bible has diagnosed you is you're in darkness, you are veiled, you are chicked by the God of this world, you think you're independently rebelling against God or against the universe or whatever, you think you're doing that on your own, but you're actually in chains and enslaved and in prison spiritually. You say, I, I, Bob Dylan said it a long time, you're going to serve somebody, it's either the God or the, God or the devil, it's either the God of the ages or the God of this age, one or the other. There's no, there's no way as a created being to not serve somebody. And so if, you're, if, you, if you've not seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus and you, you are determined to go your own way, you know the gospel, you've heard the gospel, and you say, yeah, not for me, then I would say, my friend, you've got something worse than cancer. And it's going to kill you. And it's going to kill you forever. And you are already in the process of unraveling and de destructing and perishing forever. You're already in that process. And it's going to come at a great end when Jesus returns. You say, well, what, what, what can I do? Well, you need to recognize it's not about going to church. It's not about reading your Bible. It's not about becoming a, a better person. It is about looking to Jesus. It is about believing his gospel. You say, well, pastor, how can I do that if I am blinded? My, my call to you is look. And if you can't see, pray, God, open my eyes. God, I am grasping around in the darkness and I don't see the glory of Jesus. God, speak light into me. Save me. Help me. And you know what the evidence it will be? Not that you'll become the perfect Christian, not that you'll be a super Christian, not that you will have the greatest assurance in the world, but you will see Jesus. And you will see the glory of God in his face and he will become everything to you. And the rest of your life will be spent reprioritizing and reordering your life to get that conviction down into the reality of your everyday life. That's what the rest of us are doing, right? Some of us have been Christians 15, 10 
15, 20, 30 years, longer, we're still trying to reorient our lives to get it in alignment with the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So you say, well, I'm not far enough along. You know, you know where you have to be to start with Jesus? You have to be at the beginning. That's all you need. You just need to be at the beginning and start the journey. Let's pray, please. Lord, we ask that you please bless your word to our hearts who have had the veil lifted and to those who we pray even this morning you would lift the veil.